0: What truly matters is teachers' expertise.
1: The most important tip for new teachers is to set out your boundaries.
0: 44% of jobs will be automated. It reinforces
1: cycles of disadvantage.
0: Hello listeners and lovers of learning and welcome to episode 31 of the Education Research Reading Room, the podcast that brings you into discussion with inspiring educators and education researchers. I'm Ollie Lovell, and it's a pleasure to be your host in the ERRR. I'd like to start today by acknowledging the Woiwurrung and Boonwurrung people of the Kulin Nation, on whose lands this podcast was recorded. I'd also like to pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging, as well as to any Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander people who may be listening to the podcast today. In today's episode, we're speaking to Dr. Bill Rogers. Bill's name will be familiar to many listeners, as he is an absolute legend when it comes to behaviour management. Bill really has gained worldwide acclaim for his wit, wisdom, insight and how he applies these talents to the arena of helping teachers to create classroom environments conducive to learning. Along with writing countless books on this topic, Bill has taught and still teaches in both primary and secondary schools and still spends the majority of his work time on the ground working to help teachers hone their craft. In this EAAA episode, Bill and I speak about a wide range of issues related to behavior management. And in particular, I ask him how to deal with several tricky situations. These include what to do when, as a teacher, you don't agree with a school rule that you're supposed to enforce, as well as how to respectfully assist a colleague when their class has gone totally out of control. I also ask Bill his opinion on the topical issue of when it's appropriate to suspend or expel students whether or not detentions are a good idea and what he thinks about the idea of Saturday detentions amongst many, many other important topics. Before we enter the ERRR, just a reminder about my weekly email entitled Teacher Ollie's Takeaways that comes out every Friday afternoon at 3.30pm. If you'd like some of the best edu blogs from right around the world from the week just gone delivered right into your inbox, jump onto ollielovell.com and sign up for this mailing list. And if you've been enjoying The e for six or more months now, why not consider being a patron? If you feel that the podcast is worth a monthly donation of as little as the cost of a cup of coffee, I'd be immensely grateful if you were to go to patreon.com forward slash E-R-R-R and sign up to support the show. Alternatively, if you can click the become a patron button at ollielove.com, you can sign up there too. Also, before we jump in, I just wanted to make a comment on the narrative style of Bill's answers in this episode of the HRRR. Bill, more than any guest before, uses the medium of stories to convey his message. As such, at times it may feel as though he isn't answering my question directly, but I encourage you to just allow yourself to be swept up by Bill's narratives and go along for the ride. What Bill really does when he tells these stories is he invites us into the classroom with him. He paints a picture of what it's like to be in Bill's classroom, speaking for students and teachers and acting out scenarios that will be familiar to most, if not all, classroom teachers. I hope that you enjoy learning from Bill in this narrative fashion. I personally feel that simply by listening to Bill act out his methods of behaviour leadership has allowed me to imagine myself in similar scenarios and hopefully absorb at least a bit of his confidence, eloquence and finesse when it comes to behaviour leadership. I hope after this episode you feel the same way too. Okay, without further ado, let's jump straight into episode 31 of the ERRR podcast with Dr. Bill Rogers. Bill Rogers, welcome to my lounge room, which today is also the education research reading room. Thank you and welcome.
1: Well, don't say welcome, but uh, thank you for putting out a plate of fruit, some nuts, a cup of tea and water and uh, a comfortable couch. So thank you, Ollie, for your kind invitation.
0: Absolutely. Pleasure, Bill first question we always ask is, Bill, if you're at a party and someone asks, hi, Bill, what is it that you do? What's your answer?
1: Well, I was in a taxi recently and a taxi driver asked me what my job was. And whether it's a taxi driver or at a party, not that I go to many parties, my first response is that I'm a teacher. Mm -hmm. Then, depending on the length of the conversation, who I'm talking to, I'll extend that into what I'm doing now as a teacher, which is working directly with schools, sometimes in the classroom as a mentor coach, team teaching, or conducting workshops or seminars or lectures at uni, and I normally take it from there. And this taxi driver, it was about a 20-minute journey. When I said I was a teacher, I didn't extend into the work I do now, he almost took his hands off the wheel and started to play the violin. Oh, really? And I thought, what's he doing? And then he started complaining about how teachers have all this time off, what an easy job they've got, they have all these holidays. So I let him have a little bit of a run for a while. And then I said, look, I'll tell you something. Our daughter, our oldest daughter, is uh, 43. She's just gone back to teaching and she's taking over from a teacher on leave, an art teacher, and she's conducting art lessons from prep right the way through to grade six. It's right across a large school. Do you know what she did in the holidays? I said she washed every arts mock, made sure she spoke to the teachers, even before the holidays, whose classes that she would be teaching in, about their units of work and the themes that they were doing. And during the holidays, developed lesson plans to begin to work with the children on a whole range of themes, including the use of origami and artwork and so forth, as she was covering an art class. And I said it with a bit more force that I'm sharing with you now over, mm-hmm. over a tea. And then he just shut up. He said, What's your football team and changed the subject. It, it's because when you say you're a teacher, depending on the context, people do have impressions of what they think, how easy they think teaching is. Mm. And also everybody's been to school, including this taxi driver. So I always begin with that, I'm a teacher.
0: Could you give us a bit more about the history of your career today and how you've come to be a teacher today?
1: Well, we came out as 10-pound migrants from Britain in 1963 on an old Italian converted troop ship, I think, horrible boat. Took about four weeks to get here. I think the best thing we ever did for them. mum, dad, and the four boys. So I was only 15, 16 by the time I'd got to England through the Suez Canal, and then i started working on building sites up in Queensland. We were ensconced in a, a migrant hostel. So I, I went out and worked on these building sites in the bush as a kind of a, a de facto apprentice. And it was hard work, so I was a little skinny English lad. And eventually we moved to Melbourne. And when we went to Melbourne, I started to go back to night school to finish the education that I'd left at uh, 15 years of age in England and did physics and chemistry and English and to get my HSC. In fact, when I was doing my HSC at night school, working during the day in a carpentry um, business as an apprentice, uh, that's where I met my wife, um, uh, Laura, of now 50 years. We've been married 50 years this year.
0: Congratulations.
1: Yeah, she was uh, finishing off an English subject uh, for HSC. And uh, I was called up for national service when I was 19. And because I was still studying at the time, I'd switch from carpentry to design draftsman, architectural draftsman. Uh, Because I was studying, they allowed me to do my national service part-time. I was in artillery, so we did our training at Pakapanyan and other places uh, in Victoria. Eventually went into the parish ministry. Got a degree at uh, theology at Melbourne University at Ridley College. I was a parish minister for uh, seven years. We lost our second child, full term, so we're pretty tired. We were working in the western suburbs in a small parish out there, or oh, this side of town. And then went into teaching. And then when corporal punishment was abolished in 1985, right across Australia, They were looking for people to work in schools as consultants for the government. And my principal showed me in the Gazette, we had a Gazette that was kind of required reading in those days for all things and all matters to do with the education department. And this position came up in the Gazette and he showed it to me. He said, what what do you think? I said, no, I don't think I would do that. He said, they want a discipline consultant to work across the western northern suburbs. I said, I don't know whether I'm up to that. He said, no, I honestly think you could do it. Uh, so I took twelve months leave without pay and took the job and worked for the department. And I remember when I first started doing that for the department, I won't mention the school, but it's not far from here actually. When I offered to help as a new and consultant who'd just left full time teaching, he said, Oh, you just you consultants sit on your backside we well, didn't say backsides, but he said, You sit on your backsides all day, what would you know? And I said, Well, look, I'm happy to come in and work with some of your teachers who are particularly struggling, if they're willing to work with an outsider, and we would have to have a conversation over coffee first. And he, he said, you serious? I said, yeah, of course, I'd be willing to do that. I mean, that's one way of maybe, I don't know, connecting with the teachers who are struggling. And then these were tech scores in those days. We don't have them anymore. And he said, oh, okay. And he became a little bit more amenable. He became a lot more amenable when I got to know him over coffee, the principal, I mean as did the several teachers in that school. And I started to do that, and I did that for about 12 months. And I learned so much about the dynamics of classroom behavior, and also about the issues of stress that teachers face. I mean, I'd experienced that myself in a number of schools, but now working with colleagues who were stressed and not being a full-time teacher, I could reflect maybe a little bit more and work with them to reflect more and use non-judgmental feedback with them to kind of raise their professional self-awareness, but with trusted colleague support, Mm. which I think is crucial in our profession, because without the willingness to ask for and receive non-judgmental support from your colleagues at various levels in the school in terms of role levels, this can be an incredibly stressful profession if you start to psychologically and socially isolate yourself from those who can help and then after 12 months I thought I was getting lots of requests for for schools interstate and I, I don't know how that happened but I thought I wonder if this is something I could maybe do privately so I, I took leave without pay now from the consultancy position I had and started to work do the work I'm doing now ever since, and that's what I've done. I continue to work with teachers in the classroom. Uh, That takes up about probably 15, 20% of my work at the most. The rest is a combination of giving seminars and work with groups of schools or individual schools, uh, workshops, and work at Melbourne University. I've got an honorary fellowship there, so I'm obliged to take lectures there every year. So that's what I'm doing now.
0: I'm wondering what you think it is that enabled you to learn so quickly and to be able to condense the lessons that you gained in such a way and communicate them so mm. well in able to reach the heights that you're, you're at at the moment.
1: Well, when I was a parish minister, I, I also did ministry as a chaplain mm. to several high schools in the western suburbs. We're in a very poor parish. I worked with some... I was a very young parish minister at that point. And some of the people I worked with were incredibly troubled in their lives. You know, there there was issues of domestic violence. There was issues of, you know, financial debt. I worked with a number of families whose male spouses were in prison. I did a number of chaplaincy visits to Pentridge Prison, Mm. as it was in those days. I did hospital chaplaincy at the Western General Hospital. And we were pretty young and both of us were young and we tried to give a lot to our local community. And and I must have learned a lot about, I suppose, just working with troubled people. Mm. And when I came into teaching, initially teaching seemed a lot easier than the parish ministry in a sense because you're always on call. At least we were in that parish, Mm. always on call from people with all sorts of troubles. So I think that helped. And then the study helped as well. I did a lot of reading around behavior. There wasn't a lot of writing about behavior in those days, not in Australia anyway, there was in America. So and when I was studying at Melbourne Uni, while I was uh, teaching during the day when I became a teacher, I started to read books that I thought might be helpful for me. And I went back and, because I was doing psychology as well, I went back and looked at some of the the major theorists, you know, from Kohlberg and Piaget right the way through to Abraham Maslow and Mm-hmm. Uh, and others, and Alfred Adler, who's been a huge support in terms of reading his work, and Rudolf Dreikers, both you know psychiatrists who'd written widely on why people construct such troubled lives, particularly with children, and the social dynamics of behavior in the classroom and so on. I read that material, which was all fresh to me and gave me a fresh insight. Mm. And so I did a lot of reflecting during that time as a teacher and the university study that I was doing on conflict amongst children and reading some of these unbelievably insightful psychologists like Eric Erickson and others. And that helped spur me on. So whatever I'd learned as a parish minister, even my army experience of seeing young men being bullied during their national service, atrocious bullying, all those insights came together and i'm sure all of that has helped in a profession which whose primary purpose is to help young people to understand the world and mm-hmm. understand themselves so i mean it's all those threads there's no single thread and there's no it's just hard work and reflection coupled with a desire to go into a profession where you want to make a difference
0: so it That's really interesting how you spoke about multiple threads. And if I were to try to summarize what you're talking about, what I heard was a really deep exploration of the human psyche and what drives people, coupled with hard work, a lot of reflection, and something you didn't say explicitly, but you said implicitly for the way you were speaking about it, a lot of caring for people. I was wondering if there was anything in relation to what you discovered through your exploration of what makes people tick that you think like any particular things about what make us tick that you think have served you really well and that perhaps a lot of teachers haven't quite nailed as yet or a bit of information that we can talk about early teachers more generally some pieces of information about what makes us tick that might help us to work better with spirited young people if there's anything i've learned about
1: social psychology and individual psychology is that, this is where I think Alfred Adler and, and several other psychologists like Maslow and Erikson and Piaget, the primary need we have socially, we have many needs, obviously, as Maslow identified, but the primary social need we have, as Alfred Adler said, the brilliant Alfred Adler, he said, our primary social need is to belong. If we don't believe we can belong, or from our family circumstances and dynamics, we haven't learned to belong in reasonably cooperative ways with all the imperfections of, and challenges of siblings and you know family life generally. If they haven't learned to belong cooperatively with all the ups and downs that entails in a family, when they come to school, if they come from highly disaffected homes and dysfunctional homes, or highly indulged homes, they find other ways to belong. And the most common ways they belong is by drawing significant attention to themselves, significant attention. I mean, everybody, most people like some kind of attention, not in the way that some of our world leaders narcissistically draw it to themselves. I don't mean that, that's an appalling way to belong. But the children who are the most challenging are the ones who in order to belong, their goal becomes to seek attention, so they're constantly scanning for it. Or they seek to extend that attention into a power struggle, which is another form of getting attention or control of your environment, social environment. And Alfred Adler and others, I found their work really helpful as a very powerful insight into and litmus to understanding group dynamics. Adler's point, Alfred Adler's point was that if a child feels inferior, significantly inferior in his social setting, he'll compensate for that. He coined the term inferiority complex. He'll compensate for that by drawing attention or power to himself. And that makes teaching a significant challenge. It's not the teaching of the curriculum, that the material that you're trying to engage the students in the learning process, that's a challenge in itself you're dealing with the group dynamics as well these expressions of social belonging are more marked now it, it was present then it's always been present in schools but because of the repressive nature of corporal punishment and highly punitive models of discipline those children tended to be weeded out of the system in a where now in a highly inclusive um, schooling environment which i fully support it is it's more marked now and we need to be more aware of that and these insights and understandings have helped me to reflect on the sort of skills and practices to bring to that understanding
0: some fantastically rich reflections there bill thanks so much that's all right if people want to explore the work of adler anymore do you recommend any specific texts for them to check out
1: yes uh, understanding human behavior is one of his seminal books. But there's also a book written by his associate, Rudolf Dreikers, wrote an impressive book in the 80s called How to Maintaining Sanity in the Classroom. It's a very provocative title, but it's a very, very powerful book in understanding the theories of Alfred Adler and how Dreikers, his associate, has developed that to the level of the classroom context. And this is one of the seminal books alongside Glasser that helped me enormously in the 80s to reflect on group dynamics and how to deal with highly attentional and provocative behavior in front of a class mm. and how to deal with that. Those two books helped me enormously. Glass's book, Scores Without Failure, and then that particular book from Rudolf Dreikers.
0: Fantastic, well, lots of things for us to follow up with after the podcast. And it's just fascinating to see that foundation as really in human psychology, and fundamentally, as you were alluding to there, the importance of belonging. I want us to move now into, you know, we've probably got a lot of early career teachers listening or a lot of teachers who are about to take on a new class or something like that. And you break down working with a class into three main stages. You talk about the establishment phase, the maintenance and consolidation phase, and the cohesive phase. So keeping in mind that we are really keen to ensure that our classrooms are a place of belonging for all students. What would you recommend to teachers, new teachers or teachers with new classes in terms of how to establish a cohesive class right from the get-go? What exact tangible actions should be taken from that first lesson?
1: There's a readiness there in the establishment phase in February. There's a readiness, or September, if you're a teacher in Britain. There's a readiness in the group in every one of those students, a readiness, a twofold kind of readiness. Well, one is how am I going to belong here? That's the most important thing. They don't say it in those words. Their private logic says it in ways that are age-related. You know, how do, how am I going to fit in here? How do I belong? So the first one is how do I belong here? The second one is what kind of teacher do I have here, and how is she or he going to lead and teach me? And for some of the kids, they're saying, how can I get away with, you know? They're not planning, well, some kids do, but most kids don't consciously plan how to test their teacher out. But there is a phase where children do test out their relationship with a leader. You don't have a relationship initially. So from day one, those critical first few days and first few weeks are absolutely essential for a teacher. In the way they express their leadership, the way they begin to build a relationship with a class, which we don't have yet. And all that happens through the way that we exercise the communication, the way we communicate with students as a leader, and particularly the way we address behavior, because once you start addressing behavior, whether it's calling out, chatting, fiddling with pencils, or water bottles, or toys, or phones, or whatever it is, while you're trying to settle a class, Whatever the behaviors are, right through to the really significant ones, the ones that are highly challenging, with all those range of behaviors that are potentially there, how we deal with that from day one is crucial, absolutely crucial. Also, how we follow up with students who are significantly disruptive from day one is important too, so we don't ever get across the message, things won't be addressed. And as a leader, the way that I teach and lead, the routines I develop with you and will seek to reinforce over and over again, because they're fair routines, they're necessary routines, they're routines that will help with socialization and learning, except we don't use the word socialization. How we communicate those routines and how we communicate our leadership, particularly when we have to address behavior, are crucial in those first stages and it's not uncommon that beginning teachers don't always get they're not always well equipped for that sometimes even our universities don't equip the students well enough for that i mean they're naturally nervous as it is you know if you can remember when you first began teaching even at
0: the start of every year uh, even at the start every of every new year. class there's nurse. Yeah,
1: every new class yeah even after the holidays and Every time I walk into a class myself at seventy-two, when I'm standing in front of a class as a mentor, I, I still feel that little bit of nervousness. It's not traumatic, but it's certainly there's a natural level of anxiety there. And sometimes the natural evolutionary biology of fight and flight can take over. And so when students start to call out, you know, you'll see teachers saying, "Guys, come on, please don't call out. Can't you see I'm trying to teach?" And they'll They'll make really unhelpful comments like that, or they'll say things like, why why are you calling out now? Can't you see I'm trying to teach? Really pointless questions. And these are not bad teachers at all, they're just teachers who under pressure develop a kind of a, how can I put it, a request language under pressure. You know, can you please stop talking? You and I would not say that to students. If they're talking while we're trying to settle a class, we would describe what we see. A number of you are still chatting, and it's always a number, it's not the whole class. That's really important that we qualify that as we're helping a class to settle. It's really important that we qualify a number. A number of students are still chatting, or a number of you are still chatting. You need to be facing this way and listening. So I'll use a brief descriptive cue and pause for a little while for take up as I'm scanning the room. And I'm aware that the body language is, is, is calm but expectant. It's relaxed without being cavalier. I'm really conscious, deeply conscious of that. And I'm seeking to convey a calmness, a confident calmness, but not an arrogant calmness. No cockiness or arrogance. Arrogant teachers deserve everything they get, and kids will give it to them these days in a way that they never did in the past. And they deserve it. If you're an arrogant teacher, well, you deserve everything you get. But I often work with teachers who find it difficult to respectfully and confidently assert their leadership, not in a hostile way, but in a respectful, firm, dignified way. That's why mentoring is so powerful because one of the other things teachers will often say over coffee is, or tea, now I know what you mean by the way we use language under pressure. Now I know what you mean by tactical ignoring or selective attention. Now I know what you mean by take up time. Because they see it, there's an existentiality that goes beyond something that's written in a book. And that's why the books are quite long sometimes, because I'm trying to get some existential contact with the reader as much as I can as a, you know, as a colleague who's writing something. But in the classroom, the existentiality is, is palpable. And so over coffee, they can, they're saying, now I know what you mean, because they're seeing it with their students, not somebody else's students, but their students in the same physical spaces that make up the significant part of their life as a, a teacher. So, The establishment phase is crucial. And the routines you establish from the way you enter the classroom, even the lining up, if there's a line-up policy, that that settling procedure in the first critical three or four minutes until the class is settled, and I won't even say good morning until they're settled, and I don't mean sitting rigidly upright, I don't mean any of that, but I mean relaxed in their seats, facing this way, whether it's table groups, U-shape, or split rows, facing this way, when they're facing this way and settled, and I've queued for noise, chatting, fiddling with objects like window blinds or whatever it is, once I've queued for all of that and they've settled, and if several kids are calling out, which is really common, uh, Mr. Rogers, you know, why are you here? Are you going to go? Is he going to be our new teacher? So all of that nonsense is coming. Not nonsense. Some of it's genuine, but a lot of it's attentional. And that's where social intelligence can see the difference between attentional calling out and a genuine question that's maybe thoughtlessly expressed by clicking your fingers here, boy. So if kids are calling out, I'll say, look, a number of you are calling out. I will take your questions later. They need to be reassured of that. Right now, though, hands down, hands down, thanks, and eyes and ears this way. Some of you are still chatting. Remember, it's whole class teaching time. Facing this way, thanks. And sometimes when I do that, the kids will sulkily turn their seats around, raise their eyes to the ceiling and sigh. And those behaviors, those secondary expressions of their attentional behavior or at times selfish behavior or even narcissistic selfishness, those secondary expressions like rolling of the eyes and the sighing and moving their chair like, you know, in noisily like that so they're being noticed, that behavior I'll tactically ignore for the present because it's not essential to the, what's actually happening at that point. But I'm not going to allow students to sit with their backs to me during whole class teaching time or continue to chat or fiddle with toys or mobile phones. And I'll often say, several you have got your phones on the table. The phones need to be off and away. You know that. They need them to be off and away in your bag. Or if you like, you can leave them on the teacher's table up here. I won't touch their phones, but if I can see phones across the room, I will make that point before I'll say good morning. And all of that takes about maybe three or four minutes in some classes, then I'll say good morning. And then during the on-task phase of the lesson, when we're both moving around the room to encourage, micro-teach, give feedback, maybe even, Exercise, behavior, leadership for kids who are being silly or time-wasting or whatever they're doing. But the routines are crucial to establish right from day one appropriate levels of noise during classroom discussions, movement around the room, how to get teacher assistance fairly and reasonably, right through to lesson closure, even finishing a lesson in a way where you dismiss the class. Because I've been in many classes where kids are walking out before the bell. And I'll call Ibrahim, Bilal, uh, Shannon, come on, back inside. Back inside. And they'll say things like, well, the bell's going to go. The bell hasn't gone yet. The bell hasn't gone yet. You need to be back back inside the class for your teacher and I to dismiss the class. And they'll walk back in sulkily. Sometimes they'll kick a chair and they'll slump in the seats. And what I'm trying to do there is to reestablish what should have been established way, way back in February, that when the bell goes, the teacher dismisses the class. And before they dismiss the class, I also remind the students to pick up any litter, straighten the furniture, chairs on the table if it's period six, you know, do the cleaner a favor. And I'll even write that on the board, the very first lesson I have if the teacher's not established this. I'll go through those three essential, deceptively basic understandings that we straighten the furniture, or chairs on the table, period six, pick up any residual litter, even if it's not yours, and we leave row by row, up to, at least up to year 10 anyway. So all those routines, and there's more that we could talk about, but they're the core ones, are absolutely essential. And once you've established them, even a seating plan is appropriate in some classes, perhaps even in year 12 sometimes. Once you've established those, you have to maintain them. Every single lesson, until you habituate and hold fast, that these routines are here fairly for a reason, They're, they're, they're very fair and necessary. I would say essential routines, not just necessary, but essential to the smooth running of a classroom. And we'll establish those routines on a faculty basis at secondary, grade team level at primary. And once you've established them, you maintain them over and over again until it kind of becomes reasonable second nature for the class, reasonable, sec- never, be, never be perfect, you've got 25 individuals. That's when your class becomes cohesive and they've built, you've built and earned the trust that you expect from them. You've built that from day one. You've sustained that through those critical first weeks. So by the end of term one, you've got a reasonably cohesive class. And most of your behavior leadership is coming now from a relationship that you've built that you didn't have in that critical first week.
0: You've touched on some of the routines that you think are important. Could you give us a little bit more detail about exactly how you, with your own classes, what these routines look like? So do for entering the classroom, do students line up outside? Then do you say, okay, come in. When they come in, how do you expect them to set up when they sit down at their tables? You know, when it's exiting, do you get them to stand up behind their chairs and push them in and look around for litter? Or, Could you give us a little bit more concrete detail about what these routines look like?
1: I think with the core routines, you're covering entry to the class. Now, some schools don't have a line-up policy. Schools vary
0: in that. Do you think they should, or do you think it works well? No,
1: some schools' architecture doesn't lend itself to a line-up policy. Mm. But there should be an entering-the-room procedure. I'll give you one example. I was working with a, a grade four teacher two years ago. And we were both lining up. We were both standing at the door, and the kids were had come in. The bell had gone from morning recess, and there were several boys at the end of the line. And when we say a line, it's just a procedure for twenty-five students at the side of a wall, on a long corridor where other kids are getting ready. We're not limiting people's freedom. It's just a routine, like a bus queue. I mean, there's. Mm-hmm. This is an important understanding we're not trying to control the students, we're just trying to have a procedure, age-related procedure that's appropriate to entering a, a small space called a classroom. But even that routine needs to be discussed by the faculties and we should ask ourselves questions like what's the fairest, most reasonable way that we can get 25 students, enable 25 students to reasonably and respectfully, calmly, come into that small space called a classroom, take their seats in whatever seating plan we think is age appropriate or subject appropriate. And once they're physically in that space, what sort of cues, verbal cues or nonverbal cues do we use to help them to settle and focus after being vigorously involved in play? Those questions need to be asked collegially as well. Then we need to take what we believe is right as a school community and then that becomes what we establish for example to go back to that grade four i was standing at the door with michelle my colleague and there were five boys at the back of this line grade four and they were pushing shoving one boy had his hand around another boy's neck and he was kneeing him in the rear with his knee but just stupid silly male bonding nonsense, you know, all that silly nonsense. And Michelle was about to take the class in with this behavior unaddressed. So I quickly said to Michelle, Michelle, do you mind if I have a quick word to the class before we go And She said, no, it's fine, Bill. I could already hear the tiredness in her voice. And I said to the class, because only six kids are mucking around down the back, I said to the class, excuse me for a moment, because they are got to put up with this nonsense down the back. So it's important to cue them. I said, excuse me for a moment, everyone. And as soon as I said that, the boys stopped. They sensed that there was another teacher talking. Uh, They sensed that, as kids do. I said, excuse me for a moment, everyone, I just need to talk to the boys down the back. And standing, I didn't move down the back. I said, fellas, you were pushing and shoving and grabbing and kneeing with your knee. And I actually tapped my knee when I said that to the boys. Playtime's over. That's all I said. Described what I saw. I didn't say you shouldn't do that or why you're doing that, which wouldn't be helpful. But I did describe it clearly, respectfully, I hope, but certainly firmly. And one of the boys said, we're just mucking around. I said, fellas, we don't muck around like that in our class. And already I'm trying to re-establish as a second teacher in our class. You know, our I swear, I said, we don't muck around like that in our class, fellas. And they frowned at me and they gave me a sulky look, but they stood there like that with their frowning and their sulking, which I ignored or tactically ignored. And I said, let's go in. We went in, they took their seats, some of them really noisily like Caleb and Will and some of the other boys who I'd spoken to outside. And as I was standing at the front and my colleague was introducing me to her class, a third of the class had their backs to her in their seats and their table groups. And Michelle is talking over their backs, through their backs, over their heads. When she handed the class over and said, thanks, Mr. Rogers, through the, and there was a bit of noise there, a fair bit of noise and chatter and kids, some boys playing with little McDonald's toys. Instead of saying good morning, I said, some of you have got your backs to me. Maybe you're not aware of it, and I'm trying to say it in a clear, relaxed voice. Some of you have got your backs to me. Maybe you're not aware of it. And as soon as I said that, and that descriptive cue, that kind of group descriptive cue, is to raise their behaviour awareness. And several kids started to turn their, gonna be silly here perhaps, but mostly they were the girls, turned their chairs around. I said, thank you, I can see you now. Yeah, bring your chair right around. And some of the boys that I'd spoken to were still half turned, but not fully turned. A little bit of attentional nonsense, you know, maybe a little bit of low-level provocation. So bring your chair right around, thanks. What's your name, Caleb, is it? Yeah, bring your chair right around, thanks, Caleb and bring your chair in, bring your chair in, that's it. So even those descriptions, those directions, you know, bring your chair in things, yeah, bring it right in things, they're directions to behavior you want to see. Not don't sit like that, or what did I just say, not those kind of cues. And they did it noisily, which I chose to tactically ignore. Some of them are still kind of frowning at me, even scowling at me, because I, as the new teacher, I'm changing the dynamics somewhat. Several kids were calling out. I said, I know you want to ask questions. That's the descriptive behavior awareness cue. I said, I know you want to ask questions. I will take your questions later. They need to be reassured of that. Right now, though, hands down, thanks for facing this way. Hands down, thanks for facing this way. I need you looking this way and listening. That's much better. Thank you, everyone. So I'm not going to say good morning and thank you, And by the way, the thank you is brief. It's not, oh, thank you so much, guys. That's awesome. None of that nonsense, you know. Just a brief, respectful thank you. You're much more relaxed now. Good morning. My name's Mr. Rogers, as your teacher said, and I'll be working with you up until lunch play. I want to talk with you now about some of the things you've been learning about how to multiply numbers by 10, which is what Michelle was teaching them. I said, what have you learned so far about this? And several hands went up. Some kids were calling out. I said, remember, it's hands up without calling out or clicking your fingers. So we all get a fair go. So again, I'm trying to reestablish. And again, the language that I'm trying to model to my colleague is important. Even if they don't initially pick up the differences, we can do that over coffee later. I'm trying to help my colleague to see that it is possible to re-establish those essential routines for behavior and learning in the classroom. And that's why example is an important tool. We don't often get the opportunity in our teaching journey to have a colleague come in that we trust, or at least take the risk of trusting, to work with us over several sessions. Um, So those routines are important, right through to lesson closure, dealing with noise level. And if we've established well and we've followed up with the kids who are more persistent, and we'll talk about it a little bit later, it's so much easier as the term, certainly by term two, and you might need to do some mini-establishment at the beginning of term two or even three sometimes, certainly term two after the holiday. You're giving the kids a safe structure and framework within which to belong as a young citizen and to belong as a member of a school community. You're giving them a safe, secure, sane, respectful context and environment where they spend a third of their day to belong, because you're gonna be dealing with things like teasing, calling out, smart comments, put downs, cheap shots. You're gonna deal with all of that right through to bullying issues so that they're learning what a fair social landscape ought to be like and why it ought to be like that and how it can be like that. And we're gonna work hard to make sure it will be like that. So they're learning those issues as well as, you know, how to multiply by 10 or whatever it is we're doing. But unless that leadership is there, there's a sense in which the, the students will begin to pursue their own ways of belonging, seemingly unrestricted, seemingly unrestricted, I stress seemingly unrestricted. That's why it's crucial that we consciously develop those practices and skills and understandings from the outset as much as possible. Obviously, there'll be days when we don't get it right and we, we forgive ourselves, learn from it and move on. That's obvious. So anyway, look, I'll stop there because I've obviously been talking for too long, but I hope the essence of what you're trying to say there is that you don't have that cohesive phase. You've got to build it. In one sense, you've got to earn it, not grovelingly so, but by the quality of your leadership, the quality of your teaching, and even the quality of your follow-up, the way you follow up restitutionally with students that need to have that, both the consequential follow-up and also the restitutional or repairing, rebuilding follow-up as well.
0: So the question I asked to tee up that answer was, what are some of the explicit routines that you see as really beneficial in the classroom. Your responses so far, Bill, they've really come back to similar things, which are you modelling effective ways of communicating in the classroom and reinforcing appropriate behaviour, I guess we could say. Now, the way you speak is very practised, it's very measured and it's obviously very effective. And I'm really curious about how that is developed. Like when you're working with a teacher... How do you help them move from where they are today, which may be you know, the desperate pleading or the kind of angry shouting or whatever it may be, to that measured, practiced, descriptive language? Is it just a matter of practice? Is it a matter of working alongside you and just seeing you express yourself in that way over and over again? How is that developed?
1: It all starts with awareness, self-awareness and professional self-awareness, if I can extend it to professional. If you're not aware of what you're characteristically doing, that may be not only unhelpful in terms of utility, but also may be contrary to the values which in your better moments you actually hold. Mm. And I hope that all of us as teachers, I'd hope then, I'm not saying it happens, but that we hold values about treating children with dignity and fundamental respect, even the children that are difficult to like, sometimes incredibly difficult to like, we still treat them with dignity and respect. Doesn't mean to say we ignore their behavior. We might tactically ignore aspects of it, but we treat them with dignity and respect. We treat them inclusively. We treat them within the differences that they bring to their personality and life journey. We treat them inclusively in that sense. And also, when we're talking about actual skills, we have to ask ourselves, is what we characteristically do and say when we lead for behavior and learning, but certainly behavior, is it consistent with our values as much as we can ever make it
0: consistent? But secondly, is it achieving the aims we want? So in terms of supporting teachers to, to learn these practices, and when you're working with these teachers, do you actually get them to practice saying this stuff in the classroom when there's no students there? Or do you say, you know, yesterday, the students were fiddling with the blinds. What would have been helpful to say in that scenario was this, when they do that today, I would like you to practice using this phrase or speaking this way. How do you, how do you, how do you scaffold that for the teachers?
1: Something like that. But the first thing we'll do after our very first session, if you and I are sitting down having coffee, first of all, have a bit of a whinge. You've got to allow that, although we don't call it whinging. One of my colleagues used the term moan-bonding. So we... Moan-bonding. Moan-bonding, you know. So, Because whinging has got a short shelf life and it's not that cathartic anyway. But you've got to allow a little bit of ventilation of our shared struggle. Mm -hmm. More their struggle than mine, because I can go home and I might see that class for another week or a fortnight sometimes. And then I'll say, do you remember when we were helping the class to settle, both of us at the front of the room? were you aware of what you were doing and saying to help the class to settle? So I'll use questions like, were you aware? Mm -hmm. Were you conscious of? Did you notice what you actually said? And often what they'll say to me is something like, well, I, I tried to tell them, Bill, that you do a lot of work helping classes to be more cooperative and learn more effectively together. I think I said that, Bill. I said, you did say that. Were you aware of what you said when the, two boys came in late, were you aware of what you said with the four or five students who were calling out? And often they're not aware of what they actually said in the corrective side. They can often remember the introduction, but they can't remember what they said to deal with the distracting behavior. Mm. So I'll then say, do you mind if I share with you what I heard you say? And they're quite surprised at times. Sometimes they're not even surprised, I'll say, like if I say to you, Ollie, are you aware you, often said things like, you know, Elise and Clarissa, why are you still talking? Can't you see I'm, I'm ready to teach? And they'll say, yeah, I did say that. And I say, are you aware of what that kind of language might, how the student might pick up that language and process it upstairs? And then they'll say, I'm not sure what you mean. And from there, we can start to talk about the way in which questions, I mean, I might even say to a class, for example, will you please be quiet? If I want them to be quiet, I'll focus on what is happening. I'll say, some of you are still chatting. It's time now to settle down. Settle down, facing this way. So I'm deeply conscious of the, the actual words that are said and the tone and manner of respectful confidence, but not arrogance that's lying behind that and the expectation that's there. I'm trying to convey that. That's more difficult to teach than the actual language. So, so first of all, I'll raise their professional self-awareness by saying, were well, you aware of what you did or said when? And I'll only focus on what is most characteristic, not what's occasional. And we look at the three phases, you know, whole class teaching time, on task learning time, and lesson closure. It's normally the first two are the most crucial. I mean, I've worked with teachers, for example, who do a lot of pacing up and down while they're trying to settle a class, Partly because they're nervous, because another teacher's in the room, but and often their voice is quite raised you know, there's a strong kinesthetic loudness, but not shouting. And if they're not aware that that's characteristic, how can they move towards change? And and before we even look at change, that they, they need to be aware first. And then I'll say, next time we're together in the class, I'd like to suggest not you should do. I'd like to suggest that when you're helping the class to settle, this approach might be more helpful because, and the because is important, the because is, is giving you the value judgment of why the alternative or the other approaches might be more helpful and consistent with our values, but also more inclined to raise awareness and engage ownership. Body language and tone and manner of voice, that's harder to teach.
0: So, they've you're raising their awareness and after they've kind of probably maybe next lesson, they do the same thing again because it's such a habit you have a chat afterwards yeah, yeah, sure, and it takes course, a few yeah. lessons and then they finally yeah. start to stop maybe and pause and think a little bit yeah. and then do you find that that reminding and that reinforcing most teachers with whom you work tend to over time develop the habits that are more productive?
1: I did a lot of analysis on this over the years, and it's about 70% of the teachers who've electively chosen to work with either myself as a mentor or another colleague, because I do a lot of training of mentors, Mm -hmm. about 70% have reasonable to, I'd say, fairly effective, at times very effective take-up. About 30%, there's, minimal or no take up or very poor take up or no take up. And some of those teachers have gone, we've had to pursue, this is not my brief, but the leadership team has had to pursue performance-related issues. Mm. I mean, there's a, there's a percentage of teachers, Ollie, who shouldn't be in the profession. And they, they are the highly, those highly dominant choleric kind of personalities who believe the world should be the way it should be, and the way it should be is the way I think it should be, and if it's not that way, I'm going to get really angry. Mm. So they're, they're constantly trying to dominate classroom situations, and that you've got no hope these days of doing that unless you're in a, a very exclusive kind of school, and they probably wouldn't want to employ a prat like that anyway. But there are people on that extreme left of the personality spectrum or highly demanding personalities very black and white mentalities about the world. They shouldn't be in the profession. Then you've got the really non-assertive people who for some reason have taken the risk of, well, what can I do with my degree? Well, I'll teach, you know. Mm. And so they come in thinking, look, I've got this knowledge, I can teach it. But look, without respectful, positive, well thought through behavior leadership, they're not gonna be able to teach maths or science or English or or loat, mm. but in the middle ground, there's a lot of teachers, and I think, beyond personality, whatever our personality is in terms of you know, extrovert, introvert ranges and other ways of interpreting and understanding personality, within that middle range, we can learn those skills. I mean, if it was just down to personality, well, you're stymied, really, because you need there are skills you need to learn, and some people will more naturally embrace those skills, I think, the more reflective, confident leader, non-arrogant leader will more likely develop those perhaps, I don't know, in, there's no significant research in this area, but the rest of us can learn them. I, I mean, I, I wouldn't stay in our profession if I didn't believe that we can improve the quality of our teaching and behavior leadership, particularly the behavior leadership which is whatever contribution I can bring is the one I'm trying to bring. I honestly believe teachers, and I'll give you an example. A couple of years ago, as a maths class, year nine. And my colleague was doing positive negative integers on an XY graph, which is way outside my field of comfort as an English humanities teacher. And I'd already had a chat with a class about what this means. And I said, you have to understand, I don't teach maths. So you need to understand that when, when you're sharing the information with me, all right? So do your best, English teacher, students who are teaching XY, XY in algebra, explain it to me, hands up without calling out, off you go. We had a good discussion, and I started to write some things on the board, making a learning map in my head from what they were sharing, you know, making my own learning map with them. I did that for about 10 minutes, I said, thank you, I've learned a lot about, a lot more than I, you know, remember about XY Grass. So I'm going to now hand back to your regular teacher and explain what we're doing for the rest of our time together. Thanks, Mr. Smith. And I stepped back. It was a kind of a social professional cue for, for him to take the class lead. And he started to talk about the lesson and one of the girls down the back started to wander out of a seat to go and talk to another girl. He said, Shelly, that was her name. He said, Shelly, Shelly, why are you? And he stopped and said Shelley you are wandering around and you know you need to be in your seat this is whole class teaching time and he almost went back to a script go ahead. as far as saw his face redden and afterwards we we laughed about it but it, he kind of caught himself midway if you know what i mean and reclaimed or started to reclaim what he had kind of learnt at one level but not wasn't habitual if you like and I find that really encouraging. And over coffee when we have a bit of a laugh. It's really nice to talk about that.
0: I'm keen to hone in now on some kind of scenarios in the classroom. You've right. given us a lot already. I'm keen to offer some more and just see exactly, you know, just then you referred to the scripts that that teacher, but yeah. kind of what are the scripts or what are the phrases or what are the techniques and strategies you'd be using in these kind of scenarios? You mentioned a lot in the book. You mentioned the strategies of be descriptive and directive, which you've talked about. You mentioned give choices tactically ignoring, take up time, partial agreement, humor, nonverbal direction of cues, direction or cues, distraction and diversion strategies, and a couple of others. So right. I'll give you a few scenarios and we'll see which of your behavior leadership toolbox strategies you draw on in each case. So the first one is just teaching some students are having a natter off to the side, pretty unconcerned with the teacher instruction. What kind of phrases or would you use in that kind of context?
1: All right. Now, just before I answer your question, I'm just going to have a drink of water, but just listen to this. This is a. am not going to advertise what brand it is, but you've only got to get three or four of those during whole class teaching when you're trying to explain or share something or open a discussion. You know what I mean? That's just one lousy water bottle. Uh, uh, A pump's all right, but not these these ones here. I'm just going to have a drink is what I was going to say, Ollie. Sorry. So I'll just have a sip of water. The chatting, and I'm thinking of one of my classes when I was doing Anzac Day a couple of years ago. And being in the army, that helped because I could bring a little bit of experience of, although I didn't go to Vietnam, I was able to talk about my army service a little bit with them. And even before we got into all of that, the army service, and before I did any learning maps on the whiteboard behind me, which I always like to use visual cues, The the girls were still chatting. There were four of them chatting. One had her seat half facing away from me and she was talking to another girl. Just openly. They could see that I was ready to begin to work with them. So I said, excuse me for a moment, class. A number of students here in the front, I'm just non-verbally cued with my hand. I said, a number of students here in the front. You're still chatting. It is whole class teaching time. And Sometimes that's enough. It's not always enough, but for some students, that awareness raising, that you can see them saying, oh, okay, and then they'll adjust their behavior. They'll stop chatting or they'll put their hand down or they'll stop fiddling with the blinds or the water bottle or whatever it is you're raising awareness about. Some students need a direction as well or a rule reminder. And in this, in this intuitive, socially intelligent sense, I sensed, that the descriptive cue had connected, but wasn't enough. So I said, you need to be facing this way and listening, thank you, which is the directional cue. And whenever we give a directional cue, mostly, unless it's a serious event, it's better to focus on the behavior you expect. I want to face this way rather than don't talk while I'm teaching. You need to be facing this way and listening, thanks. And uh, over here, bring your chair right around, thanks. Uh, Bring your chair right around. And when I beckoned to this girl on the end, to Alexa, I remembered her name. That's another thing. It's important to learn their name. Alexa, bring your chair right around, thanks. Yeah, yeah, and face this. She doesn't still hear you. I said, I'm sure you can. A little bit of partial agreement. I'm sure you can. Not I don't care whether you can hear me. What did I just say? I said, I'm sure you can. However, you need to turn your chair right around in our class and face this way. And as I took my eyes off of her, as it were, to refocus to the class and just see how these girls have brought their chairs uh, beginning to face the front. And I'm still trying to look to the rest of the group to to refocus to them to say, look, I've been as judicious as I can in dealing with this, and I want to get back to Anzac Day or begin to talk about Anzac Day. So I'm I'm trying to give take-up time to these girls as well to refocus to the group and not over them out. She turned her chair around really noisily as if to say, well, I'll do it but under sufferance and all that silly nonsense that attentional nonsense is what we tactically ignore. We don't ignore the primary behavior, which is having her seat three-quarters of a way around chatting to the other kids, nor do we ignore the three or four kids chatting, nor do we ignore the three or four kids calling out, the kids fiddling with the window blinds or a kid rocking on his chair noisily. We address that firmly and clearly. And then when there's, Basic settling, then we say, right, good morning, everyone, thank you. You're much more relaxed now, and settled. Sometimes I'll add that as the new teacher. Good morning. I understand your regular teacher, Mr. Lovell,' has been talking about Anzac Day with you in preparation for, you know the, the holiday and the time we remember what happened during that period in our history. What have you learned so far about Anzac Day? What does it mean to you as a young person now, all those years removed from the first world? What what does it mean if it means anything to you? I want want you to share with me that now. Obviously, put your hand up without calling out. And your first name. I'm a new teacher here. I've, I've met a few of you. And I looked at the girls again. And some of the kids who'd been distracting. Obviously, your first name. And a few kids started to call out. I said, remember, it's hands up remember's nicer than don't forget on the ear. I said, remember it's hands up, thanks, so we all get a fair go. And I could see kids adjusting their behavior, some wearily putting their hands up as if to do what the new teacher says. Some of them just went back to a fair hands up, so we all get a fair go. And we had a reasonable discussion. So in that case, the example you're giving, that's what I actually did in that class when I was trying to share my experiences on theirs about Anzac Day.
0: That's great. What about if a student, say they're listening to music in the classroom, yeah. you ask them to, to stop and then they say, yeah, but Miss, Miss Smith lets me do this. Yes. How do you address that? Uh,
1: that? That's one that I get all the time. With the rise of, we don't have phones anymore, nobody has phones. With the rise of devices, which are 10 seconds away from the worldwide graffiti board and everything that's on it, nobody has phones anymore. Those days are long gone. They were a pain when they were, but the pain is a hundredfold now because of social media and everything, you know, Snapchat and uh, AirDrop, you name it. If it's during whole class teaching time, when I'm trying to raise a discussion about whatever it is my colleague is teaching, I'll say I can see a number of active phones. Sometimes I can see them at the lights there. If it's not active, I will say a number of phones on the tables, you know the school rule, they need to be off and away in your bag, or if you like, you can leave them up here. So I'll say that to the group, a number of phones are, it's not everybody's got them on their table. Some of them, most of them got them in their bags or their pencil cases. And as I take my eyes off the kids who've got the phones to reclaim whole class focus, I can often see kids wearily putting them away. If they don't put them away, if it's gonna be difficult, I'll, I'll say, if you choose not to put it away, I will have to follow this up in your own time. And I'll say that as a general statement, not to the one or two kids who've still chosen or refused not to put it away. But if it's during on-task learning time, when I'm cruising the room, helping the kids, I'll walk up and I'll give you an example. I was in an Indonesian Lote class, And this young lad, Jared, year eight class, was down the back texting. And I walked over, because it's on task learning time now. The focus is now on the work, on the activity, on maybe helping your classmates to hopefully get some meaning out of this. And you're doing your best to micro-teach, encourage, address behavior where it needs to be addressed. So I walked over and I said, it's Jared, isn't it? He said, what? I said, Your name It's Jared, isn't he? He said, Yeah. And I could see there was a bit sus because, you know, I'm not his regular teacher. And I sensed also, for the fifty thousandth time, that he knew I was going to say something about his phone. But he put the phone aside as I walked across, you know. He'd at least done that. And I said, How's your work going? He said, What? I said, Your work? How's it going? He said, I don't like load. I said, You don't have to like load. So it can be annoying to do things you don't like, but it is what we're doing today. Now, how can I help you? He said, what? I said, how can I help you? And I said, what do you have to do? He said, what? That's the most common response I get from kids is what? Truly, I'm not joking. And not, not the only response, but a very, very common one. I said, what are you supposed to be doing? He said, what? I said, you work. He said, it's a worksheet. I'm supposed to be doing the worksheet. And he was sighing as well, which I chose to tactically ignore because the temptation to say, why are you making a big deal about this? That's the temptation, or get on with your work, that kind of, they're the extremes if you want. And I said, we looked at the worksheet, I said, can you do this? He said, I can do it, I just don't like it. I said, as I said before, you don't have to like it, but you do your best with it. I know it's period six, uh, just let me know what you need to be doing. And he tried to explain it to me. I said, it sounds like you know what you're doing, even though you don't like it. That little bit of partial agreement. I said, I'll do your best with it. By the way, now I s- chose to speak about the phone. I said, by the way, the phone, uh, Jared, needs to be off and away in your bag. Or if you like, you can leave it on your teacher's, Gina's ta- table, the teacher I was mentoring. And then he said, he said, but I was just texting my dad. I said, you can text your dad after class. That's the partial agreement bit. You can text your dad, so it's saying, listen, son, even if it was true that you were texting your dad, and I don't think it was true, by the way, although I didn't say that, I said, you can text your dad after class. That's that little bit of partial agreement that says, I hear what you say, son, however, the important thing now is to get back to work. I said, you can text your dad later. For the time being, you know the school rule, it needs to be off and away, and I'll come back and see how you're going later. I always like to leave them with a task reminder that I will be back, you know, cruising the road. Then he said, but Gina doesn't care, first name school. He said, Gina doesn't, I said, I can't answer for Gina, the school rules clear, needs to be off and away. Then I walked away, and as I walked away, a couple of meters, I heard him say to his mate, who's he coming in our class telling us what to do? That was whispered, but loud enough for me to hear it, and that's what I chose to ignore, or tactically ignore at that point. But I'm not gonna ignore kids with active phones, or phones just sitting there. It's a temptation is to want to Snapchat or on. If they refuse to put it away after some reasonable take-up time, I'll go back and say, the phone's still there, but I'm not even using it. Even if you're not using it, Ollie, the score rules clear. If you choose not to put it off and away, I'm going to have to follow this up in your own time. And I'll telegraph a deferred consequence because it's not a major issue. It's an issue, but it's not a dangerous or um, a highly Disturbing issue, but it's certainly an issue that needs to be addressed. And I'll make that clear. If you choose not to put it away, I'm going to have to follow this up in your own time. And sometimes students will say, I don't care. And you feel like saying, you bloody well will care. That's what you feel like doing, but you don't. It's enough to say, I care. Not I care in that sort of pleading voice, or I care, you know, in that dominating voice, which says, you know, you're going to cop it, but just the firm, And then the key is that you will follow up with him with some kind of consequence later that's appropriate to time, and even if you've got to make an appointment with him, that's crucial. But every class I work with, there's at least two or three phones that are active during on-task learning time. And if, if they say to me, other teachers don't care if we chew gum or dance on the tables in an east window, whatever they come up with, I'll say, I can't answer for other teachers. The school rule is clear though. The phone needs to be off and away. That's a directed choice. No choices are free in that sense. It's mm. a directed choice. The phones need to be off and away. The same with toys. They're playing with a toy. I won't take the toy, I won't walk up and say, give me the phone because the phone is their third hand. It's grafted onto their, you know, their social world. It's grafted onto their personal and social psychology, so I won't touch the expensive iPhone 4 or whatever they've got. Um, and if they refuse or choose, choose and refuse can be on the same spectrum, I'll make the consequence clear, unless it's a really serious issue where we've got to use timeout procedures or something like that.
0: All right. In that, in that answer, you alluded to a contradiction between the teacher's classroom rule Gina's rule about, you know, I don't mind if, I, Gina doesn't mind if I text my dad, for example, mm, yeah. and the school rule. Yeah. This is something I'm, I'm curious to ask you about. Imagine there's a school rule like students must not wear hats in class yep. or something. A teacher's been, you know, struggling with a challenging student and they're just starting to make some progress. This, they are started to work focused, but the student's still wearing their yep. hat. And the teacher's kind of worried that if they get this, ask the student to take off their hat, for example, it's going to cause this big issue that's going to get in the way of their, their learning. How do you suggest teachers kind of tread that, that sensitive ground? I don't think it's that sensitive, really. Okay. I mean, you're
1: taking the issue of hats. I was in a, another low class, German class, and there were a couple of kids with beanies on, a couple of kids with baseball caps and during whole class teaching time, normally I don't say anything about the hats because it's not relevant. It's not affecting the whole class discussion and I don't want it to get in the way at that point. As they're coming into class, sometimes I'll just beckon with my hand to the hat or I'll say, a number of you got hats on, remember where we're going as a kind of a descriptive reminder cue. Yeah, okay. Same with the iPhones. If I see kids listening to music, I'll point to my ear and you know just beckon and do a little wind with my finger as if to say wind up the earbuds and put it away. But if they come in a class and it's still on, sometimes I'll give them a non-verbal look with the eyes as if to say I did remind you before. If they sit down with their hats on during whole class teaching time, I won't say anything at all. Okay. But during on-task learning time, you've got a more personal engagement that's not geared to whole class focus. You know what I mean? You can walk up to an individual and have an individual transaction, if you like, in a way that you don't do in a whole class setting in the same way. So I, I walk up, and I don't say anything about the hat initially. I'll talk, always be task-focused first, unless it's a more serious issue. So I'll walk up and say, how's your work going? Do you need a hand? Is it making sense? Where are you up to? And if a kid's not working, I don't come up and say, why aren't you working? Well, it's a stupid question. I'll come up and say, look, I notice you're not working, this is, I'm talking about sustained not working, not incidentally, episodically not working, but I'll say, look, it looks like you're not working. Um, how can I help you? Or what do you need to be doing now? And I'll use some focus questions like that, a what or a when question or a how question. Once we've had that little bit of a learning conversation, not too long, since so there's you know, 20 other kids I want to get around to work with, at least, at least half of them anyway, that are not easily on task. I'll then say, by the way, you're Needs to be off and away. And then, if they say, I'm not doing any harm, like, of course you're not doing any harm. It's just a score rule, just reminding you. And then I'll leave them alone to give them take up time. Later, as I'm recruising the room, if the hat's still on, I'll come back and say, Ollie, your hat, to... yeah, but I'm not doing any harm. You told me that before. Look, if you choose not to take it off, it's not, not life threatening. Of course it's not. However, I'm going to have to follow it up in your own time with a discussion if, you, if we, we obviously can't sort it out right now. And I walk away. And by crikey, will I follow him up? Not because it's a major issue, it's not. He's not taking his hat off when, it, when it's a clear score rule. However, much I may disagree with that rule about hats, by the way. I don't disagree with the one about phones, but I might disagree with the one about hats, beanies, and hoodies, although hoodies are a bit annoying when the kids got it right over. I will follow it up, even though it's not a major issue. And when I, keep a student back, they'll often say, what am I staying back for? Just got a stupid hat. It's not just about a hat, Ollie. It's about arguing with me about a fair school rule. That's why I'm talking with you now, away from your mates. Didn't want to make it a big deal in front of your mates. Just got a stupid hat. Whether you're saying it's a stupid hat. And he's much more amenable now away from the audience of his peers. He doesn't have to show off anymore. He's just got an older teacher talking to him with the door open for five minutes after the bell's gone or an appointed time in the year coordinator's office if I've got back-to-back classes, you know. So I was in a school in a remote area, Aboriginal community, and the kids had shorts, T-shirts. I don't think any of them had shoes on. It was a really remote area school. But almost every kid had a baseball cap on. And I, first of all, I, I did the welcoming, they were quite Um, amenable too I mean because I was a stranger in the room and a lot of the kids had their heads down and the hats I could hardly see their faces and I said do you know what when I'm looking across the classroom I can hardly see your faces uh, fellas because of your hats and you know what It's, it's quite cool in here with the air conditioner it's boiling outside we don't actually need our hats on here so I'd appreciate fellas you take the hats off and they're looking at each other and checking each other out who's going to do it first and they took them off i said and i said you might want to do this fellas because i've done it several times because i was sweating when i came into this air-conditioned classroom and some of the kids are starting to copy me and a few little grins around the room one kid kept his hat on though and he had his head down and i looked across at this lad and i didn't say anything to him and then during on task learning time we're talking about stories that were meaningful to them so and it was quite a long class discussion before we did any on-task work and it it started to come alive quite well i was really pleased with their response anyway i walked up to this lad joseph a lot of biblical names out there on this mission ex-mission kind of community and i said joseph isn't he said yeah with his hat still on i said look you still got your hat on he said i'm not taking it off I said, you must have a really good reason for keeping it on. I said, we'll have a chat later. How's the work going? We talked about the work. Well, then I kept him back and he was quite upset that I directed. He said, "What? I didn't do anything. Why can't I go out now? I said, look, you're not in trouble. You know, less than five minutes you're out of here. But as a new teacher, you know, I don't know you. I mean, I've met you now, Joseph. We've talked a bit. I said, I was just concerned about you keeping your head on. I said, what, what, is there anything I don't know about? He said, well, you know, the weekend. I said, Oh, well, I only came here today. He said, well, on the weekend, right, I got a haircut. It was a really, excuse my language. He said, he didn't say excuse me. He just said, he said, I had a really shit haircut. I said, oh, did you? He said, yeah. I said, a really shit haircut. And he said, I didn't want to like keep my, I wanted to keep my hat on. I said, okay. I said, he said, I said, Do you mind if I have a look? I said, you don't have to. And he actually took it off quickly. I said, well, you know, I might see it differently than you, but thanks for telling me. And I sent him off to play and he was fine. You know, because I'm very conscious when I keep kids back, depending on the degree of seriousness of making it a a repairing, rebuilding activity, not just a consequential activity alone. But all the other kids took their hats off. Uh, But it's not a life-threatening thing, hats, goodness. It's the same with uniform and, But it's repeated calling out, butting in, talking while the teacher's talking, inappropriate wandering, inappropriate rocking, silly, uh, hurtful comments. Those are the things that wear teachers down. Because sometimes the really significant ones, like abusive language, are so serious that they have to be dealt with. It's the ones that we have to deal with frequently, like the calling out, the butting in, the talking while the teacher's talking, the fiddling with objects, like you know, toys, jewellery, phones, not phones, you know, devices.
0: What about if, I mean, we've talked about how you personally aren't too worried about hats, but if it's a school rule, that's something that you're going to support. I will support it. What about if the rule is something like students have to wear their blazers all day, unless, well, unless it's over 35 and it's, and it's 30 or something? Well, As a teacher, how would you deal with that if you personally disagree with that rule? Well,
1: I've never worked in a school like that, Ollie. That's got to be a... Private school yeah Ida yeah yeah, okay, well, first of all, I think that's absurd, I mean really absurd, and I would probably I would probably work against that in the most respectful, respectfully surreptitious way I could. That's what I would do in that situation if it was clearly hot mm. i mean i was I gave you one example. I was in a school in England some years ago probably about five years ago now, and I I did some mentoring, some incidental mentoring. It was a religious studies class, but it was a government school, because in government schools, they still wear blazers, Mm -hmm. not uncommon in England. And it was boiling hot because of the radiators, even though it was winter. And Mm. I said, it is so hot in here. I said, please feel free to take your jackets off. And I'm thinking, why should I even need to say that? but obviously put them by. I'll give you a couple of minutes to do that. You know, See if you can do it without too much chatting. And when I look around and see that you've got your jackets off if you want, unless you desperately want to keep them on, and it was fine. And I said, thanks. Okay, you're probably feeling a bit more comfortable now. Let's talk about symbols in the Christian religion, which is what the textbook was talking about, some of the key symbols. And, and I took my wedding ring off and started to use a physical object as of what one thing symbolizing another can mean we had a really nice lesson and the teacher I was mentoring she thought that was okay too but although the particularly stupid school rule was the one that you just mentioned but I, that would never occur in the schools i work in here and by the way this you mentioned before about children standing up behind their seats that can work even in government schools, but in the more difficult schools I work, I don't think it's worth trying to start with that, okay. unless it's a whole school. If it's a whole school procedure, and we think we can make that work, and we've got reasons for it, and we can explain it to the students, then I would support it. I would definitely support standing behind the chairs. And then, because we're all standing up together with the students, then i We do the settling cues then. Then I say, thanks, everyone. Obviously, take your seats. Thank you. And then we'd start. But I would only do that if it was a genuinely whole school that we were all making the effort to do.
0: Next scenario I'm curious to ask about, there's a couple of ways that this kind of plays out. But one way is students kind of making a, not a direct comment or anything, but they may put down another student. It might even be involuntary. For example, a student is called on to answer answer a question. Yep. Student A is called upon. They answer the question. The answer kind of isn't doesn't make that much sense. Yep. It's wrong. Most yep. people kind of understand it's wrong. Student B or student B, C, D yep. give a little chuckle, not a loud chuckle, just a yeah. just a quiet one. And they obvi- you know, obviously that has an impact on student A's feeling about themselves. They feel probably pretty down about the fact that their response has been laughed about. What would you do in that kind of scenario? probably
1: i would say something like that's not something we would laugh at we wouldn't laugh at a comment like that or something like that i mean i i remember working in a pupa referral unit for very challenging kids and we were doing a reading circle together this is about eight years ago now and this boy couldn't read the word plow he said pluff fair enough and and, I, and this other kid laughed i said that's not funny jason's trying thanks jason and he kind of didn't want to pursue it much longer than that. I said, look, I, I know it can be annoying when people laugh. I said, just do your best with it. And the other kids sort of sat back like that. Sometimes when I say something like that, the kid will say, I'm just joking. I say, well, it's not a joke. In our classroom, that's not a joke. Uh, thanks for trying, Jason. W- want to keep going? And if they don't want to keep going, then I'll move on to another student, depending on the context. But sometimes it's much more serious than that. If I'm having a discussion, another kid says that's crap or that's bullshit, you know, or that's rubbish. I'll say to the kid who said that, first of all, I'll say to the kid who's speaking or trying to share something or even asking a question, I'll say, Ollie, just excuse me for a sec. Uh, Shannon, if you want to disagree with Ollie, you do so respectfully. That was an unfair comment. And I'll use word like an unfair comment. If it's thoughtless or ill considered, or unfair, I'll use that word. If it's more serious than that, I'll say, that was a really unkind comment. If it was hurtful, I'll say, that was a hurt. There's a moral weight Mm. going from thoughtless right through to disgusting. I've heard some really foul things that kids have said, you know, racist language. I say, that is totally unacceptable. That is a racist comment. It's not a joke to me or to the class. And And that's where the voice has to be Really mm. firm, not not aggressive, but certainly decisively, unambiguously firm. And if four or five kids laugh along with that comment, I, I honestly think it's worth saying something like this. And I wouldn't have expected anyone to be laughing along with what Shannon's just said. Right, let's get back to what we were talking about. We'll continue out as class discussion. And I would also the boy that said that it's not always a boy. I have to say that. I would keep that student back to talk about the way they were using that language. If it was just a minor issue like the chuckling, I wouldn't keep the kid back for that. Mm -hmm. I'd allow what happened in the public space to be enough to raise his long-term awareness. Mm. I've heard children say disgusting things to their teachers. And sometimes I'll even get involved and say to the teacher, Mr. Smith, do you mind if I have a word to the class? And I'll kind of... I don't want to use the phrase "take over," but I'll kind of almost take the responsibility of addressing what that student said. And I'll say to the student, what's your name? And they'll give me their name. Sometimes they won't. Sometimes they even start becoming difficult on that. So I'll address the behavior. What you just said to your teacher wasn't just offensive. That was disgusting. I don't expect anyone in our class to use that kind of language. On occasions like that, Kids have to hear the moral weight mm. behind the word, you know, the racist language, the homophobic language, the misogynist language, the sexist language, the desire to hurt somebody by what they say. And they know what they're saying. Mm. The most common defense is, "I'm oh, just mucking around, it's just a joke. It's not a joke. It's not a joke to me or to, to any member of our class. And I wouldn't have expected anyone else to laugh along with that, even if that laughter is nervous laughter, by the way. because you're trying to spread something not too long it's got to be brief decisive and firm you're trying to spread something about the moral weight as the teacher leader in the room because if you don't do that who else is going to do it mm. seriously who else is going to do it and it really upsets me when i see teachers ignoring so-called funny jokey homophobic language where they're calling cross the road, oh, yeah, That's a stupid comment, gay boy, and the teacher says nothing about either the stupid comment comment or the gay boy addition to the stupid comment comment, if you understand what I mean. And that has to be called out, mm. otherwise who else is going to call it out?
0: Mm. You spoke before about following up some things like these, you know, really hurtful or offensive comments should really be followed up. How does that conversation go, or how, how should that conversation go?
1: Well, I'd even follow up a student who's refused to put their phone away.
0: And first of
1: all, I have to consider, particularly in the high school, how much time I've got. If I haven't got time between classes, if, if I haven't got a class straight away, I'll keep the student back for a few minutes and then make an appointment to see him in the year coordinator's office. It's different at primary school. But when I'm actually meeting with him, if it's recess, morning or lunch recess, or I've made an appointed time to have a subject teacher detention at secondary. When I sit down with a lad, or will stand up with him if it's only a five-minute chat, and I'll always keep the door open for probity reasons. And if it's a female student and it's a, more than a few minutes after class, I'll actually formally organize for a female colleague to be sitting in, mm-hmm. in the back doing a work program or whatever, just so there's the ethical probity is heightened by having a female witness to a male teaching speaking with a female student mm-hmm. and the first thing i'll do is just because often they're really annoyed that you have kept them back even if it's only a five minute chat full-blown detention, and they'll often complain what what, what do i have to say i didn't do anything and their voice is like that and they're frustrated and the first thing in my view and my colleagues most of my colleagues share this the first thing we do is to briefly tune into how they're feeling. Mm. Look, I know you want to be outside with your friends, Holly. I understand that. I know I'm not your regular teacher. Um, however, I need to, that's enough. And then we talk about the behavior. I need to talk to you about what happened in class when you refused to put your phone away. But I told you, uh, I told you, anyway, Gina doesn't care, like as long as we get our work done. You did tell me that that's true. However, the school rules clear. You chose not to put the phone away. It's a school-wide rule. It's a fair rule. That's why we're talking now. And I'm trying to keep that voice calm but respectful and keeping the focus on the issue at hand, not on all the secondary issues, about what Gina did or didn't do, or what Gina allows or what she doesn't allow, whoever it is, or what other kids do. Because the most common response I get is other kids call out too. That's true. They do call out. When I reminded Shannon and uh, Bill Al to put their hand up, though, they made an effort, and certainly almost every student was putting their hand up. You just kept calling out. And I'm not talking once or twice, Ollie. I'm talking a dozen times easy. That's mm. why you and I are talking now. So you're raising his behaviour awareness specifically about the issue at hand, whether it's the phone, the repeated calling out, the way he put another student down, um, not putting the phone away. There's degrees of seriousness about these follow-ups. Uh, and I will always give a student a right of reply, but most of them claim it anyway. Even before you say, is there anything you want to say about what I've just said? Most kids will say, other kids call that too. I'm not the only one, that's true. However, when I reminded Shannon and Dean and Brett to put their hands up and give us all a fair go, they did. You just kept going for it, Ollie. That's why we're talking now. Or they say things like, I, 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 would, I would just, it's no big deal, I was just mucking around, all right? Well, it might be a big deal for you, Ollie, but it is affecting the way we learn by you calling out whenever you feel like it. That's why we're talking now. And the other one I sometimes get is, you're picking on me. You might think I'm picking on you. I'm not. I'm talking with you now because I care. Do you? Yes, I do care. I really do care about the way you learn and behave in the room, and also, how the way you behave affects other students in the room and your regular teacher and myself. And there's often a big sigh there. But your calmness at this point has a big impact on how that repairing, rebuilding conversation, that restitutional conversation is going. Mm. If I was to keep you back and the first thing I was to say was, right, you could be outside now with your friends, but you're not. You're in here with me because you don't listen to me. And I'm sick and tired of you calling out whenever you feel like you Ollie. The class doesn't belong to you, you know. If I was to talk like that, and sadly, maybe understandably because of frustration, some teachers do, you're not going to get anywhere with that kid. Conversely, if you were to begin that five or 15-minute conversation with, I'm so sorry, Ollie, I kept you back. I'm not sorry I keep kids back. Keep them back because of a consequential necessity. It's part of being a teacher-leader that sometimes there has to be consequences beyond what we actually do in the classroom that involve detaining a student, withdrawing some of the privileges and rights of recess time in order to go through the behavior away from the audience, as it were, You know where he's trying to belong in that way. Mm. And I always give them a right of reply. I always bring their focus back to the basic rights and responsibilities about the way we learn, feeling safe in the room, particularly for those hurtful comments and nasty comments, and also back to fundamental respect and fair treatment of one another. I always bring them back to that. And I always finish with, is there anything else you want to say, Ollie? And most of them say, no, can I go, go out now? Of course you can, I'll see you next Thursday. And I try to finish, how can I put it, finish, respectfully as well, not to finish by saying, you, you stuff around like this again and waste my time like this again, Ollie. You won't just be uh, having a detention with me, and you start another conversation of threat. It, these are not easy conversations to have, but there are certain protocols that my colleagues and I have developed that begin with tuning into how the lad feels, briefly, and always ending respectfully, with a clear reminder of appropriate behavior mm. and if there's a pattern of behavior over time that's not changing in the first critical four weeks we'll take will involve senior teachers and we'll look at long-term behavior support we'll look at long-term behavior support if that behavior continues as mm. a pattern yeah
0: okay another scenario now imagine crt this is a question for the casual relief teachers Yes. They come into a class, they don't know the class from a bar of soap, never met them before. Year nine, students are throwing paper planes, they're pushing and shoving each other, they're moving the furniture to create their own little hangout space. What is the best way to start to approach that chaos? Look, if it's that chaotic, you send for a
1: senior teacher. It would take a a very skilled, confidently experienced teacher to re-engage a melee like that it really would. Your best shot there. In fact, the problem with CRTs is that they're sometimes not well supported. They don't have a teaching buddy. They don't have somebody they can call on nearby if it becomes serious. They don't have an internal phone queue where they can press a button and know that a senior teacher will come down. And when that senior teacher does come down, not to embarrass them or simply take over, but to work with them. And in fact, if it's a known, if the class is known to be like that, particularly with a CRT, which itself is problematic that the kids feel they can do that, but if it's known that they're likely to do that, then that CRT should at least be introduced to the class by a senior staff member and maybe even stay for the first 10 minutes, not in a way that make, diminishes or demeans the. CRT's role but acts as a kind of a visible professional support to the teacher but also a visible cue to the class that this is a genuine teacher who's here and I'm introducing them and it must look like an introduction. It's not like the big man or the big woman standing next to the teacher with their arms on their hips like and virtually saying, well, you know, Miss Smith, if there's any trouble, she you know who to send them to. You don't want that nonsense, mm. arrogant nonsense. So they should be introduced to the class. And the teacher should feel that if it is becoming really difficult, then they can call on a senior staff member in whatever the procedures are to come down to that class. And that should be done respectfully too. Like if there's a need to maybe escort two or three lads out who are highly catalytic, And I've done that many, many times, knock on the door and say, sorry to bother your class. Excuse me a moment, Mr. Smith or Ms. Smith. What if I could borrow two or three students and I'll escort those two or three highly catalytic. And once they're out, the whole dynamic of the room starts to change. And I mean, we could have a long discussion about catalytic students who are allowed far too much rain, as it were, R-E-I-G-N type rain. They're given far too much rain in the school to overly dominate classes that's another issue but certainly as a colleague safety valve option i have on a number of occasions escorted two or three kids out of class right come with me and sometimes i say what do we do come with me no partial agreement here just come with me uh, come with me and they'll follow me out and i'll escort them away and either if i was busy i'll drop them off at another class where i know they will be looked after by a teacher who's a regular teacher, but not a CRT, who I know and trust can look after them until the bell goes, maybe give them some incidental work. Or if it's really serious, I'll take them to a timeout situation and organize some timeout with another senior staff member. There's got to be that safety valve option for the teacher. It's one of the worst things for a teacher is when there's a significant loss of control in the sense of controlling the situation, not controlling the child, but the ability to control and lead is effectively lost. And I've walked into classes over the years where the teacher's screaming at the kids, screaming at the kids, and there's three or four kids laughing aloud, you know, you've got to get those three or four kids out. Or if it's worse than that, you've got to get the teacher out. And on those occasions, I normally say, excuse me for a moment, class, sorry to bother you, Mr. Smith, there's a message at the office which is code for, leave the classroom now, I'll take the class till the bell goes and we'll debrief later. It's, it's a code, if you like. But it's done in a way that doesn't humiliate the teacher by walking in and shouting at the class, for example, and making the teacher feel demeaned or worse, even incompetent. You
0: know? That's great. And that was one of my favorite parts in your book where you introduce this idea of the colleague safety valve yeah. option, which you've just discussed in the, Kind of the first level is if you're just walking, because I've often wondered, you know, you walk past the classroom, things aren't going as well, and you go, yeah. not sure what to do. So, first thing, say, Excuse me, Mr. Rogers, can knock I on please the door first? Yeah. knock, knock? Yeah, can,
1: always knock, even if the door's open, yeah.
0: Can I please see these three students for yeah. a moment, take them out? So, that was the first yeah. option. And the second one, that kind of code that you've, I assume, discussed as a yeah, department beforehand yeah. or something. Yeah. Mr. Roger, sorry, there's a, there's a message for you at the office, if you could.
1: And there is a message, and the message is, no, you're telling the truth. Yeah, you actually say, who's got the class? So And they'll say, who's got the class? Oh, oh Bill's got the class at the moment to, you know, the end of period four or whatever. And that teacher will stay out for the end of that period. You know, you don't settle a class down and then send somebody to get the teacher to bring them back. That's counterproductive in that high-risk situation. But see, that's only a safety valve. It doesn't change things long-term. We have to sit down with that teacher and say, beyond the support I was able to give on Thursday, Ollie, how long has this been going on? Who do you think the catalytic ringleader students are, the power brokers? Beyond what the support I gave on Thursday, is there any other support you're thinking of at the moment that that you need? I've got some suggestions I'd like to share with you as well. And normally what we do is then set up some long-term mentoring so that at least, and, and often we'll as well as a long-term mentoring, we'll do a, a fairly substantial review on routines and things like that with the teacher. You can't force a teacher to have this, but it, there is a strong professional moral impetus to say to the teacher, things won't change if we don't look for a long-term support strategy because you can't keep doing safety valve it's got a shelf life of two or three times beyond that it becomes self-defeating because the kids see that things only change temporarily when the senior teacher comes in and takes jason shannon and bill out or whoever it is
0: what are some kind of long-term solutions you have seen in that kind of scenario you know often it's the first year teachers who get kind of lumped with the challenging classes.
1: I mean, that in itself is reprehensible. Ollie. It so,
0: really is. I totally agree. Yeah. What, in terms of the long term, if the safety valve has been used a couple of times, what, what happens? What, what's the next I course of action? I think some
1: long-term mentoring. So a senior teacher, not, not a, a deputy, but a senior teacher will go in and work over several sessions. And the first session is normally a discussion with the students about what's working well in our class at the moment, and why do you think it's working well? I'll always start with the positive. What are the things that are not working well in this class? And give the silent majority a voice. And this can be done as an open meeting. It can be done as a, a written exercise. It can be done as a small group exercise. So what's working well and why? What isn't working well and why? And the why question's useful here. And the third question is, what do we need to do to change things in our class so that, people can have their right to learn respected without the kind of calling out and bunning in that you spoke about when you're answering that second question. A class where we can feel safe, not just physically safe, but emotionally safe in here and upstairs and not have to put out with the kind of put, put downs and cheap shots and scoring and shafting that some of you have written about and spoken about. And I have seen in this class... And a class where we can show basic respect and cooperation to each other. What are some of the things we need to do to change things so that actually happens? So we're actually bringing them back to those non-negotiable rights. The right Mm. to feel safe here, psychologically, Mm. physically, culturally, spiritually safe. A right to learn without unfair distraction or disruption. And lastly, basic respect and fair treatment of one another. They're the three non-negotiables. You always bring the class and the individual back to that always and and that's always your underlying litmus for any behavior intervention of the core non-negotiable rights and the responsibilities
0: that attach to them i want to talk a little bit now bill about consequences and designing consequences because you know we've talked about addressing behavior in the classroom we've talked about following up with discussions but often we come to a point where there need to be some concrete consequences for students. So do you have a general way that you approach designing consequences? Do you have like a, a table that says, if students do this, then this is the consequence? How do you approach it?
1: Yeah, I think for serious offenses, serious behaviors, there should be some non-negotiable consequences. So use of drugs or selling of drugs on school property is non-negotiable and the consequence will be non-negotiable. Any form of sexual misconduct, should be a non negotiable consequence. Any form of physical aggression or bullying, any form of bullying, I'm talking about repeated cyberbullying or anything that's beyond a taunt or a silly comment but is repeated and is clearly bullying. And bullying to me is one of the most reprehensible of behaviors. For those behaviors, for weapons obviously, and significant physical aggression, those consequences are set in concrete you know, metaphorically said in concrete. And then that would mean a formal expulsion from the school for several days and then a formal due process and some formal restitution. And on some occasions, if it's really serious, like for sexual misconduct, I think the student should be expelled. That's my strong view. And for serious bullying. If it's ongoing and there's no change in the behavior through due process, including appropriate restitutional options, and accountability conferences where the victim and perpetrator are brought together, then I honestly think, for the, in those cases, for sexual misconduct, significant threats and aggression and any form of repeated and long-term bullying, you expel those students. It's got to be that serious. Most things though, for the consequences, like refusing to put phones away or repeated chatter or repeated calling out, where you need to speak to the student, either in a a restitutional conversation or a detention process. I, I I don't think it's worth having a lockstep design so you say for repeated calling out you do this. For not wearing uniform you do this. For lateness you do this. For repeated lateness that's different. I think it's worth saying having a score wide consequential response for repeated lateness. But for incidental lateness, I mean if a student's late to one of my classes the first time, right, I won't ask him why he's late. I welcome him to the class. Welcome, to the class. it's Holly, isn't it? Welcome, Holly. Look, I noticed you're late. Oh, you know that descriptive cue. I noticed you're late. I welcome to the class. We'll have a chat later, and the chat later is the consequence. You know, so even a chat, the one I shared with you before, is a consequence beyond the classroom. You're depriving the student of his right to his free time now, as it were, his playtime, his recess time, uh, as is his detention, for example. Uh, So I think it's worth having guidelines for that, but not lockstep kind of consequences. I've seen really unwieldy policies where they try to dot every I and cross every T and then they're unmanageable. But for serious behaviors or ongoing repeated patterns of behavior, that are not even in that very serious category I gave you before, I think it's worth having consequences for those. And for ongoing repeat distracting or disruptive behavior that's not in the category I gave you before of, you know, it's very serious behaviors, then I think there should be long-term behavior support for that student. Again, with consequences for not responding to the school support options. Because we do work, schools are generally very supportive with these students now in a way that they weren't in years gone by.
0: What's that long-term support look like ideally?
1: It's it's basically case managing a student who, for example, if you've had several chats with a student about his behaviour and maybe three or four detentions, maybe even a temporary exclusion for less serious but ongoing problems, it's essential that a senior teacher now is working with that lad on a a plan, behavior support plan, a learning plan, behavior plan, of some kind, and instead of you or I as subject teachers or individual teachers trying to make a plan with a lad, we've had our conversations with him, and we're now three weeks or five weeks or ten weeks into you know a term or whatever. Then it's essential that lad has some long-term behavior structure in making a behavior plan, an actual plan. And the person who does that with him is a behavior mentor or a leading teacher, a senior teacher who's got skills in this area. And um, whatever plan they make with him will then be communicated back to all the subject teachers. So it now becomes a whole school approach. And in formulating that plan, one of the first questions we ask is, how general is the disruptive behavior? If, it changes, if the boy's behavior changes significantly between maths, lot and English, then the problem may not be just the kid's behavior because he can clearly change the behavior from one subject or teacher to another. Mm -hmm. So then we'll just work with that teacher and that student, if you know what I mean. But if every teacher is saying the same thing about repeated calling out, repeated lateness, repeated grandstanding, then obviously needs to be a year-level plan for that boy or girl.
0: What do you think of detentions? Do you think they can be effective? If so, what should an effective detention look like? What should students be doing in detention? And also, what do you think about Saturday detentions?
1: Well, Saturday detentions are nonsense, so let's get rid of that. I don't even want to try to defend that, it's ridiculous. Why is that? Well, we would never use that in a government school for a start, it's ridiculous. It's only, that's a private school mentality, and not all private schools do that, but it's ridiculously. If it's got to that point, there's something seriously wrong. It's kind of almost like five non-attendances equal a Saturday detention. So something's clearly wrong in the working with this lad. And what's a Saturday detention? He's going to get into a Saturday detention anyway. You're going to strong-arm him and put him into a, a black van and drive him to the school? It's absurd. It's, I don't, it's not even worth answering. No offense, That's Ollie. Fine. With detention, you're depriving a child temporarily, but only temporarily, of a right to his free time. You're allowed to do that by law, although it's been challenged in a number of countries, including Britain recently, a number of cases have gone to court where the child and whoever's representing him has been able to successfully say, this is a deprivation of human rights. I don't agree with that. I think that's a fiction. It's a pathetically ambit claim that some grandstanding people want to make, but that's another issue. Detention should be used, because it's a serious consequence, it's got a very high degree of seriousness in it, in terms of deprivation of time. It should be for the more serious behaviors, not the really serious ones, because they, they are so serious, they're okay, the, the response to that, consequential response is different. And it bothers me enormously when kids are put on detention for homework not done, lateness to class, even uniform, so-called misdemeanors to me that's pathetic. They don't
0: deserve detention. What are good consequences for homework and things like that?
1: Well, helping the the student with his homework, finding some way of finding out what's going on. So you could maybe detain him, but use that detention creatively and say, "Look, we got a, got an issue here, that and I'm really concerned about this. I know, I know, homework can be a pain because every teacher thinks their homework's more important or as important as everybody else's, and you've got to. As a young student, you've got, to, you've got all these issues of homework, you've got to deal with each teacher saying, it's really important you get this done. I do understand that, believe me. So I want to use some of this time we've got together, pain in the neck as it is, to see if we can work on this together. So you use that time supportively. As some kids go, to try to do homework at home for some of our kids is really difficult. They're not just being difficult kids. I mean, the environment which they go home to, is no way is it conducive to any meaningful homework. I mean, it really isn't. And, it, and some teachers either forget that or don't understand mm. that. Some teachers, I'm not saying all teachers, obviously. So at least use attention, If you're going to use attention, maybe have a weight to it, a W-E-I-G-H-T, a weight of seriousness to it. And this is where the idea of saying... These sort of behaviors would occasion a detention. I think it's worth having a whole school discussion.
0: What kind? What kind, usually?
1: Well, that's something we have to look at as a whole school approach. But it would be for a repeated pattern of behavior, not an episodic one, unless it's a serious episodic behavior. It would be a repeated pattern of lateness, for example. But even then, you're using the detention as a problem-solving activity with the lad. He's not just sitting there doing homework or, I don't know, running out the school rules or some inane thing like that. One of the first things we normally do in detention, if it's a subject if it's a faculty detention, is that the student writes down what he did or what rule or right was affected by what he did, what his understanding of his behavior is and what he thinks he can do to fix it up, and what support he thinks would be helpful for him. Now, some students don't like doing this, obviously, but at least it's a a way of clearing their head. They don't have to write a lot, but they've got to make an effort to write something that is honest and reasonable so we can understand. This is a way of saying to the lad, this is your chance, an occasion now for 10 minutes, at least to write down something, or 15 minutes. And for the rest of that detention, You can talk with the lad through that, always getting to read it back to me so I can hear their voice as well as their written voice, and then maybe do a bit of problem solving with the lad. And if he's been in detention three times in close succession, he's probably a lad who's a candidate for a long-term behavior program anyway, because detention is not using its problem-solving opportunity for the lad. We have a test for consequences, and the first test is, Is it related to the behavior? Like if a child damages school property restitutionally, he does something as a civic duty to help pay back. So you don't have kids picking up litter if they weren't dropping litter. If they were dropping litter, there's a restitutional opportunity there that's kind of a civic payback. But if there's no direct link, at least get him to write down something. So the writing is, there's there's a relationship between the writing and thinking and what you're detaining him for. So is it related to the behavior, the consequence I mean, Is it a reasonable one? So you have degrees of seriousness for repeated chatting is far less serious than bullying. Bullying weighs, morally weighs a lot more than a uniform, a repeated uniform incident, for example, if he's not wearing uniform over several days. Is there a degree of reasonableness here? And secondly, does the lad see a reason why this consequence is being applied? That's part of the talking through with the lad. And the third one is to keep the respect intact. When you're running a detention, you don't start off with a lecture to the group. If you've got four or five kids in a year faculty detention or a personal chat in a subject teacher detention, you just don't start by saying, you could be you could be going home now or you could be playing now, but you're not. You're in here with me. How many times do I have to tell you, Ollie? We don't start the conversation like that. And it really bothers me. And I know why teachers get stressed. Please, Ollie, I know that. Somebody's gotta be the adult in the room, you know, in that sense, to keep it respectful, but still consequentially effective. And once you start pursuing a consequential activity as a way of getting back to the kid, that's all he's going to pick up if you're doing it as a kind of a pleading. Ollie, why do you have to be like this? and you start asking those pointless questions, that's self-defeating as well. So and I, I think it's something that some schools need to do more collegial discussion about how do we conduct a restitutional conversation, how do we conduct appropriate detentions, whether they're subject teacher or faculty detentions? And the other thing is if you direct a student to a faculty detention or year-level detention, it's important that the subject teacher who initiated that detention also follows up beyond that with some repairing and rebuilding because you can't just leave the detention process to somebody else because it happened on your watch as the subject teacher, which is very common in primary schools that the primary teacher will take responsibility for the consequential process. Well, sometimes it's secondary that is passed on to somebody else as if somehow it will be fixed by them. There should always be a question to the lad, like what do you, what do you need to do to help change things now? And I'll always say, look, what happens now matters, Ollie. What happens from now? You know, and this is the opportunity now to, to make an effort. To talk about this with me. You've got another 15 minutes to go before you leave this detention time.
0: Might move into some closing questions if that works for yeah, you. Yeah, better. go for it. Yes, please. First question is and you've given a lot of advice today, but what advice would you give to your first year teacher self?
1: First year teacher self? Well, I suppose not to be too hard on yourself when. It's hard to remember a lot of things when you're a teacher and your main, particularly at secondary level, you, you, you may be more interested in, am I getting the material right that I'm trying to teach here? But remember, you're a teacher leader. You, you, you're leading young people in their journey by what you teach, how you lead for behavior, how you encourage them. We haven't even mentioned encouragement yet, Ollie at all. But encouragement's crucial, not praise, but encouragement's crucial to the life of young people and children. So, not to be too hard on yourself and be a reflective learner. Plan well, first of all, for the establishment phase, including the routines, and I would say, even plan your language if you can. I wish somebody had taught me that, that there are some language cues that you can start with until you find your own voice. In finding your own voice, that framework can assist you. I've worked with first-year teachers who don't know how to settle a class. They don't know what to say. And they'll say things like, guys, can you please be quiet? Can you please stop talking? Which are pointless. Understandable, but pointless. You're giving requests to the kids. Can you please be quiet? Why do you have to keep calling out like that, Ollie? These are pointless things to say. Understandable, but pointless. So having a framework for how we address whole class settling, how we address kids who are chatting, how we address students who are off task, how we communicate the routines, how we deal with argumentative students, how we deal with kids who won't put toys or objects away, how we give directed choices. And I've worked with first-year teachers who even write these things down on those small library cards, you know, and they practice it. Yeah, great. And in time, that becomes their voice. They don't think anymore how do I use partial agreement or am I using descriptive cues or am I using directional cues here or reminding cues? It becomes them. And in just about every other profession, you're learning a skill that fits the purpose for which that skill is designed. Somehow in teaching, it's like you go into teaching and you, well, you know what you want to teach or you think you know what you want to teach, but when it comes to the behavior side, it's like you should just know what to do. and well, you don't. that's the point. And when you're under pressure, the last thing you think about is what will I say? not I and mean, not not just what will I say, but what should I say? And the should there is a value question. It's not just a utility question, and that so values lie behind the actual language we use. and i and the other thing I would say to my first year teacher self is, it's not your life it's your profession you have to have a lot because teaching can eat up your life particularly as a a beginning teacher when you want to really want to do your best it can eat up your life so it's not your life and please forgive yourself and start again get to class on time think about your dress and your personal hygiene and all the things you could put on a list as well
0: bill you just mentioned that encouragement you know encouragement and praise often go hand in hand and teachers are often wondering about what's the correct way to praise or what's the correct way to encourage students what are your thoughts on this topic
1: i really struggle with the word praise i like the word encouragement because as real cracker said the word courage is in the middle making up most of the middle there i'm paraphrasing his words the problem with praise is when i see teachers going up to a student who's they're looking at their work and they're saying about their piece of writing or what they've done, that's fantastic or great, that's brilliant. Or even more annoyingly, that's awesome. And having seen two Lego movies now where the word awesome drives me nuts, no, I'm overdoing it, but it's frequently said in that film. It's like everything is great or wonderful or brilliant or awesome. Very few things in life are awesome. Very few things. Certainly doing five sentences where you're writing about loneliness, or whatever it is you're doing in that writing activity is not awesome. But it might be well thought through. It might be a really considered way of expressing yourself. So when we give encouragement to children, we give descriptive feedback rather than praise. So I might come up to you and I might say, Ollie, you know, we're talking about adjectives, you know, the way we describe things. You haven't said it's a, a big box, you said it's a massive box. Remember we were talking about the different ways we talk about size, Ollie? And you haven't just said it's a yellow box. You said it's a bright yellow box. So you've you've kind of got another adjective creeping up behind it. You've got a supplementary adjective, you know, two ways of describing the box. It's coming together well, Ollie. Think about some of the other adjectives we talked about in our discussion later. Hang in there. That is a more effective form of feedback because it's descriptive to the lad. And sometimes I'll even get the lad just to talk about it or the girl to talk about their work. I had an art activity on Aboriginal art ages ago now, about five years ago, when I was mentoring. And I'm badly colorblind. And I was talking with a lad about the rings and the circles and the screams and the dots. And I asked him about the colors. He said, don't you understand colors? I said, no, I'm really badly colorblind. I said, I don't know what those, I said, what color is that? And we talked about colors. And I said, what does this symbol mean? And why did he choose this particular color? How does that work in the story? And he started to tell me. And this has happened to me countless times. One of the students nearby said, Mr. Rogers, can you come and look at my work too? But I hadn't once said that what he'd done was great or wonderful, brilliant, or awesome. I'd let him tell his story about the work. And this is important in humanities and in art. Because we're not the only ones who are making appropriate assessments about the work, the students assessing their work too. So we call that conversational encouragement. And many teachers use this almost unconsciously as particularly when they've got to know the student as part of building a relationship with him. It's a very powerful way of the student validating their learning by having an encouraging conversation, by talking about the work rather than saying, that the work is itself great or or wonderful. And if if on the rare occasions you say something is great, at least tell the lad why you think it's great. And also the other thing is, particularly with a lad who's been struggling, if his mate or girl who's struggling, if they've made an effort in their change of behavior and their learning practice, when we come up to them and and the work might be messy, I might say, for example, look, I know this is a first draft, but it's It is easy to read, Ollie, and uh, you've made some very clear insights into different ways of describing loneliness. I'm thinking of a particular lesson here. I don't then need to add, but why is your writing so messy? Or if only you could write more neatly, you'd have a much better presentation of your work. I don't need to add a negative qualifier or why can't you write like that all the time, Ollie? I don't need to add those negative caveats in. And that bothers me enormously with teachers too, where they'll give an encouraging comment, as distinct from praise, we hope, but then add a rider. Now, why can't you write like that all the time, or something like that? That's not necessary. Let the encouragement stand as it stands right now in this little tiny point in time with you and the lad, or the you and the girl. And leave it there.
0: What's your information diet? Who do you particularly follow? You know, you spoke about Adler, Maslow, Erickson before. But these days, who else who else's work do you follow?
1: I don't. Sounds awful, doesn't
0: it? I
1: I mean I I, I I'm I, I'm required not required, I'm asked to give feedback on books. You know, I've just done one recently. And sometimes journal articles. I'll give reviews on and I, I do read journals, but in terms of, I keep going back to people like Dreykas and Adler, and even Eric Erikson. No, I don't go back to Piaget, but I mean, there's enough of my memory of Piaget to remind me about autonomy and uh, individuality and so on, and the development of, of thinking of children, and the same with Lawrence Kohlberg in Moral Reasoning. But and sometimes I go back to these writers, like certainly to Kohlberg and, and Erikson, but uh, Drake is probably the one I've gone back to most, Adler's associate who, who went to America with him in the 30s, and the book I mentioned before, Maintaining Sanity in the Classroom. There are other articles I, there's nothing fundamentally new that I see people writing about, nothing fundamentally new. And some of the things I do read, I think, don't fit with reality, they're far too, how can I put it, obscure or unrealistic. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that upsets me enormously about my work at universities is sometimes some of my colleagues forget what it's really, really like in the classroom. Sometimes even principals forget. And there's a quote from, I just reread a play by Aeschylus, the, the Greek tragedian, the poet. I'm talking about 400 BC here. And he said, it's, it's it was from Prometheus Bound, you know Prometheus, the no, the Greek god of who took fire from heaven and gave it to mortals. And anyway, look, he's one of the Titans, but it doesn't matter. But he said in the play where Prometheus is chained to a rock in the Caucasian Mountains, and it's a, not a very nice story. But and he's partly being punished by Zeus. But he he says to the Greek chorus in the play, "It is easy for the one." outside the prison wall of suffering to exhort and teach the one inside so it's easy for the and i'm not saying we're in a prison wall of suffering but when i read that quote it was kind of like one of those little flash of insights you get when you you know that people are stressed but you're outside telling them what they ought to do which is why I think the sort of mentoring where you actually go inside with your colleague and almost kind of existentially struggle with them, that that validates their struggle, as well as give them hope with the the mentor that they're learning to trust. I know it's an incredibly labor-intensive way to learn. It's also a risky way to learn because you're exposing your, your esteem as a mentor, let alone your colleagues, personal and professional esteem. But at least you're there with them. And rather than just on the sidelines or watching from the back of the room making notes, which I think can be really, that can be quite stressful in itself, having somebody observe you with a note, you know, like a, a screed where they're ticking things off. I'd rather struggle with my colleague, and it is a struggle. I mean, I don't walk into a class and things work well. I have kids calling out, challenging me, swearing at me sometimes. And that's why when the teacher, when the first time I work with a teacher over coffee, they nearly always say, it's not just me. And that is a, is a very powerful recognition of the shared struggle that you're having with them. Whereas if a principal's to come in and yell at the class and quieten them down and walk out after 10 minutes, which, I, which is an appalling thing to do, by the way, That gives them no support at all. In fact, it demeans them in front of the class and it effectively says that's what you need to do. And of course, that's not what you need to do. You can't be just shouting at the class every time they're disruptive rather than structurally reworking with the group and the teacher to reestablish and rebuild that goodwill.
0: Final (sighs) question, (laughs) Bill Rogers.
1: Sorry, the sigh is not... Not because we're talking the sigh is because it's redolent of what we've been talking about the struggle. That's where the sigh is coming from. Yeah, it's really. not coming from these annoying microphones. All <laughs> <No> right. <worries. laughs>
0: uh, final question, Bill. <laughs> Any last calls to action for listeners? Things you'd like them to go away today and do? Yeah. Look.
1: Again, not to be too hard on yourself. And if you really want to teach, and this is the profession that you not have accidentally come into because you can't think of anything else, but you really wanted to teach. As the outsider, if you're taking time to listen to this, as the outsider, but a colleague, a collegial outsider, it is possible to reestablish what you came into teaching for. And there are skills and practices that you can benefit from, I'm not saying to buy the books or anything like that please I'm not there's not a, a, a appeal for that and also to take the risk of finding colleagues within the team that you can initially trust who can work with you where you can at least talk this through if not set up some longer term reflective mentoring or maybe developing a small peer support group where you can share your genuine concerns as honestly and riskily as you can and look for solutions because ultimately that's where the solutions will lie in the quality and kind of colleague support you can get in your school because that's where you're and we're all in the same boat by the way all of us are there 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 are enough people of incredible goodwill and dignity who are colleagues who are willing to give that support in a way that doesn't demoralize or diminish your own professionalism. So I would say to take that risk rather than keep holding in the stress and the struggle. That, that's what I would say. And There are readings, of course, you can always read widely. And there are some useful, very useful materials out there that you can access. So that's what I, w- I think I would say, Ollie.
0: Bill Rogers, thanks so much for your time today. It's
1: been a pleasure. And to all my colleagues out there, thank you for even taking the time to listen to what at times can be rambling, but the best efforts to try to communicate through the microphone. So all all the best to my colleagues who have taken the willingness and time
0: to, to listen. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the ERRR Podcast with Dr. Bill Rogers. As always, you can find show notes with links to all the resources that were mentioned at com. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd be very grateful if you could share it with your friends and colleagues. And as always, if you've got any suggestions of future guests you'd like to hear on the ERRR Podcast, I'd love to hear from you. Or if you've got any questions, comments, thoughts, or reflections on this episode or any other ERRR episode, please, please, please drop me a line via Twitter or email. Thanks for your time and listening today. Have a wonderful week. And until next time, keep learning. This podcast is part of the Australian Educators Online Network, aeon.net.au